นโมทัสสะคุวาตัวหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุวาตัวหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุวาตัวหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสWe have some more questions this evening that have been sent in, which I am happy to consider. However, before addressing the questions, I wanted to uh, say something about listening to dhamma talks. It occurs to me that not everybody gets this mode of dhamma sharing. And we're all, of course, familiar with what it's like to go to lectures and to receive information and be told things on a particular topic. And but that's not what these dhamma talks are about. And if we want information about Buddhism. Well, it's probably better to go looking into books or other resources. And so it's not a lecture. And then also, probably many of us will be familiar with the mode of giving sermons, where we're being told how we should be. However, in this mode of listening to dhamma talks, it's better to consider it as an invitation or an opportunity to participate in a shared contemplation. At least that's how I see it. And if you reflect on that occasion and recorded in the in the traditional scriptures of where the Buddha is speaking with his son Rahula and asks Rahula, "What is the function of a mirror?" and Rahula replies that a mirror is for seeing your face in. And the Buddha comments further by saying that for seeing the mind. I say you need wise reflection. Wise reflection is for seeing the mind, and so this wise reflection or contemplation is a particular skill. Not certainly in the context of Western Buddhist tradition, many people approach practice with the idea of applying some technique, trying to make the mind peaceful, and that can. Have its certainly its advantages, its benefits, and to get a break from excessive mental activity. Um, however, to just make the mind quiet is not—that's not the point of practice. It's, to have access to some quietude is like if you're doing some baking and you have you have access to the cooking materials, you, but you can't. Eat the flour, or that's not edible. That's not the point. It's certain that's not the cooking of the meal, and it's certainly not the eating of the meal. So, having access to the raw materials matters. Yes. So, being able to put our compulsively or habitually picking and choosing and discriminating thinking mind to one side to put it into abeyance. Not because we don't know how to be critical or we don't know how to think, but just because if the mind is always in a critical mode, always agreeing, disagreeing with what's being said, you know, I could say that better, or why doesn't he say this? If we're in that mode, then that means we're not really available for receiving. That's that's not really participating in a shared contemplation. So I just wanted to comment on that because not everybody is is aware that that's what's on offer with these dhamma talks. It's not the case that this is just relaying information that one is going to agree or disagree with. I mean, whether we agree or disagree with it, it's not really the point. The point is to receive it, to participate in it, to listen in a quiet manner, 
to take it inwards, and then afterwards to ponder on it. Who knows, it might be a very long time before the, uh, the message of these contemplations becomes apparent. But if we haven't even been uh, really present for the message, if we didn't, we weren't even there to really receive the message because our mind was so filled up with thinking, then maybe we're going to miss out. So the first question this evening is how do we hold those in power to account with compassion and right speech without naively hoping that they are quote unquote doing the right thing or the best they can? How should we hold our responsibilities as citizens without compulsive judging? I can well imagine that uh, the person asking this question gave this a lot of thought and this is a real question and probably for a lot of people at this time of uh, collective crisis how do we address this aspect of our lives I've had this question for a couple of days and thinking about it what comes to my mind is what's being asked here is how do we skillfully arrive at a decision to act or not act? How can we, where can we find confidence in our decisions? Should I say something? Should I not say something? Where am I coming from? How can we find confidence. I, I find it useful to look into where we're seeking confidence. Confidence can come from a contracted, limited, self-centered state of being. I feel sure, I feel confident, and it can feel very good, and maybe even it feels justified. I want to do the right thing, I want to be a responsible citizen. However, if we haven't really prepared ourselves, if we haven't prepared our awareness in a, to be able to investigate in a feeling way, then maybe we don't see how limited that contracted state of mind is and how limited in its effectiveness it can be. Probably we've all met very confident people but their confidence tends to polarise, tends to fragment, tends to pit people and conditions up against each other. They can sound very confident but that's coming from the state of deluded egoity the big I am sure. Yes, again, it can feel good in a certain way, but that's the same as like just eating lots of junk food can feel good in a certain way, but it doesn't mean to say that it is good for us. So what's the alternative to a contracted, partial, fragmented sense of me and attempting to find confidence in that mode. What's the alternative to that? Well, this is what I think we're doing when we pay attention to cultivating these teachings we have, the Buddha gave us on the, the five spiritual faculties. Sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. We've all heard them many times before. In practice, what are they? Sadha or faith or confidence, trust, mm. very energy, sati, mindfulness, samadhi, collectedness, 
panya, discernment, these qualities, these aspects, these faculties. You know, we have eyes we can see, we can ears we can hear, and nose we can smell, and so on. And these help us navigate our way through the outer world. But the inner world, the way we navigate our way through the inner world to find real stability, sustainable, a beneficial, truly beneficial confidence is through cultivating the spiritual faculties. And it's not, we're not talking about developing my faith. We can have that, my faith as some sort of an object like my belief system and cling to that and that's just another state of contracted, deluded egoity. But when there's something like selfless faith, what does that feel like? What does that look like? Trust. What does that feel like? What does that look like? So the, the invitation is to investigate these things, not just to think about the five spiritual faculties, but to investigate what does trust feel like? Some people say, oh, I don't have, I find it very difficult to trust or I don't have faith. And, well, if you didn't know how to trust, you could never sit down on a chair. I mean, we sit down on a chair because we trust it's going to support us. We speak openly with a friend because we've decided that we can trust this person. They're not going to come back and judge us, condemn us or hurt us. We trust them. What does that feel like? What is that ability in practice, in actuality? I think of it as the capacity to accommodate uncertainty. It's an open-hearted capacity to accommodate uncertainty. We might like to get it, we might like to fix it, and like, I want to be sure. That's the opposite of faith. And it can be very tempting, and if we've spent our lives busy clinging to everything, which again is what the state of deluded egoity is about, clinging to our views and our opinions, our possessions, our our rights and our relative sense of identity, desperately clinging to get some sense of certainty. But it's so energy extravagant and so counterproductive. It does give a strong sense of I, a strong sense of me, but is that really productive? Does that really free us from the fear of uncertainty? Does that really give us a sense of self-existent well-being? So trying to secure faith is like, I often think of it as it's like when you, you walk down the lane and you walk past the wild honeysuckle and you, the fragrance of the honeysuckle and you want to capture the fragrance. You can't capture the fragrance. You can take a photograph of the honeysuckle, you can feel the honeysuckle, and, but the fragrance of the honeysuckle, that's something else. That's of a different frequency. And so it is with faith, with trust, with confidence, with sadha, is of a different frequency, it's a different aspect of our hearts. Learning how to value that, again, as I say, not in a, in a my faith that's going to prop me up and make me feel safe, but that disposition of trusting. Or if you've ever been you know, swimming in the ocean and you learn how to breathe in a way whereby you can just float, you think, actually it's not logical, the water shouldn't hold this great big heavy body up, but it does if you relax and breathe properly. I've often spoken about that example of when I got caught in a current when I was home in New Zealand, swimming off the west coast of the North Island and, and got pulled out to sea and it was in, intensely frightening and threatening and I really thought I was in for big trouble. And, and but at the time, I, I had learned this breathing exercise which taught me how to just breathe in a rhythmic way and relax and trust and allow. And fortunately, on that occasion, I remembered that and turned over my back and just this breathing and surrendered to the breathing. But there's the power of the habit of trying and struggling to save myself and contract around that every time the contraction kicked in, the breathing faltered and started to struggle again. So let go of that and trust. Trust is what enables letting go, allowing things to be as they are. And fortunately on that occasion, the, the current as it was took me uh, down the coast a bit until I was out of the 
current and was able to make my way to shore again. So the sense of trusting manifests benefit on all sorts of levels. Trusting a friend, trusting that the car coming towards you is going to stay on the other side of the road. Trusting that bearing with even really, really difficult mind states like confusion, like fear of uncertainty. How do I know when to act or when not to act? If we're attached to the self-centered desire to be certain, maybe we're going to always struggle. It can feel very tempting to want to be certain, like want to be sure. However, we're stuck on wanting to be sure. That means we're stuck in a state of motion. Wanting is movement, is activity. And if we're clinging to it, we're never going to feel sure, never. And if we cling to the wanting to be sure, we're generating and clinging to the fear of being unsure. They go together. And it's really important to remember, clinging to wanting to be sure and the fear of being unsure, they go together. So how do we let go of that conundrum? Trust. In the scriptures it records this incident where somebody asked the Venerable Sariputta and the Buddha's chief disciples, what gives rise to the arising of right view? And the Venerable Sariputta responded, there's two causes. One is wise reflection and the other one is hearing teachings from another being. So if we have the good fortune to be able to hear teachings, something maybe gets activated. I can trust in that. But can I be sure? (laughs) That's not trust. That's not the same thing. If we're addicted to wanting to be sure, we're never going to be not really sure. Maybe we can be sure in the way of a deluded ego is sure. That's called fundamentalism. And there's lots of that around, not just in the world of religion, but in politics. So the confidence to feel where being responsible, I would suggest, is not going to arise out of that contracted state that is the characteristic of attachment to wanting to be sure. That confidence is not going to come from that source. and not a sustainable confidence. However, it's possible that it will come from a more selfless, aspect of our being trusting or selfless energy not my energy when we when there's lots of energy around like at the moment there's lots of energy people are frustrated that's energy now if we hold it too tightly then it's my energy and it's my problem but is there a way of expanding our field of awareness of uh, taking a big, long, deep in-breath and creating physical space with the suggestion of accommodate all this energy. Can I expand enough to accommodate all this energy? What is it that's bringing about this increased global rate of suicide? And I'm talking about before the pandemic. It's increasing at a a frightening rate around the world. Not so long ago, it was the statistics indicated it was one person in the world committed suicide every five seconds and it won't be long before it's one person every second. What's happening? It's not the lack of food. It's not the lack of education. It's not the lack of of shelter. It's not the lack of medicine. It's the lack of ability to meet life, to accommodate life. What does that come down to? It comes down to how we hold life. Do we hold it in a tight, clinging way, demanding, feeling entitled to be sure by clinging to a feeling of certainty? Or do we know how to trust and expand and receive all of life as it comes to, even with all its intensity, even if it's triggered by a crisis like the world is in at the moment, can we accommodate that intensity? Can we accommodate all that energy? Or are we going to take sides for and against it? If it's painful, well, then we take sides against it. If we're 
get energised and enthusiastic because we're in a conversation that we're enjoying or, or maybe you do some dangerous sport or other and you get all energised and, and then we take a position for it. It's the same thing. We're clinging to the sensations. Is it possible to, as I was suggesting last week, exercise the imagination that we are the space in which all this is taking place? Just as a metaphor for awareness itself. When I think about going for refuge to the Buddha, what I think about is going for refuge to awareness itself. Silent, selfless, just knowing awareness. I go for refuge to silent, selfless, just knowing awareness. I go for refuge to the Buddha. And that silent, selfless, just knowing awareness, like the space of this room, it doesn't matter what passes through it. Instead of being all the movement, all the doubts, all the worries, all the striving, all the struggling to be right, afraid of being wrong, the intensity to allow the imagination to suggest in a feeling sort of way, in an embodied sort of way, that we let go of that struggling and receive what's happening. All the intensity. We don't have to say it's right or it's wrong. It's like this. And mindfulness, the watchfulness, the alertness, we could make that into another extension of deluded egoity, my mindfulness, my mindfulness is getting better all the time, or my mindfulness is not very good. Or we could listen to ourselves making a self out of it. What is the knowing, what is the awareness that he is us making a self out of mindfulness? What is that knowing, what is that awareness that knows there's this perception of intensity, of energy? If we remember this going for refuge to the Buddha, maybe it'll help us withdraw from going for refuge to the world. The world is all the activity. In what is all this arising and ceasing? So as for making decisions about the right way to act, instead of trying to be sure, perhaps we could experiment with really feeling what it feels like to be unsure, but not cling to it. Just know the feeling of uncertainty, the fear of uncertainty. Wanting to be certain and the fear of uncertainty to let that be our object of investigation. And the the, uh, fourth of the five spiritual faculties of collectedness, appreciating that we do need to collect our attention, to discipline attention, to steady attention so that there's enough ability to see, to read, to feel, to study what's going on. What's that feeling in in our guts of the fear of uncertainty? Can we stay with it or do we distract ourselves with a thought? Do we contract into it and and get drawn into that feeling of fear and, and then when we cling to fear which the fear itself might be perfectly suitable and understandable and an aspect of intelligence however when we cling to the fear then it can turn into anxiety dread terror so selfless trust selfless energy selfless mindfulness selfless collectedness and, and selfless discernment to contemplate what that might mean. Asking the right questions in the right way at the right time. If we are used to always following the movement of desire outwards, which most of us are most of the time, then it's difficult to reflect, to recollect, to investigate when we need to and the way we need to. But the fear of being wrong, the fear of being irresponsible, the fear of making a mistake, uh, the fear of abdicating uh, duties, 
That's for investigation, that's for questioning. So how to question in the right way? Well, if it's based on I have to be right and I have to be sure, it's probably going to be a perpetual struggle. The alternative might be that we engage these spiritual faculties with the suggestion that we can purify them. Yes, in the beginning it might be my faith, my energy, my mindfulness, my collectiveness, my discernment. Yes, it's bound to be like that in the beginning. However, if we go for refuge to the Buddha and remember awareness itself and start to feel how we can step back from that making a self out of these faculties, it's just trusting. Like there's just the fragrance of a honeysuckle. It's not my fragrance of a honeysuckle. It's just there. and Just trusting. So the second question this evening says... Oh, this is a question that I wrote down after a phone conversation I was having with somebody and they... In this conversation, they asked me, they said, once this pandemic has passed, I really want to be able to contribute to the health and well-being of humanity. Do you have any suggestions as to how I might do that? In the same spirit as we were just considering how we relate to wanting to be sure. The same thing applies, wanting to get results. If we don't pay close attention to that, we might not get the results we're looking for. We might get the results we're looking for. If we do get the results we're looking for, then we can get very pleased with ourselves and puffed up and, and proud in and, and ways that you know, could lead to even more suffering and discontentment. There is also the option of appreciating the motivation of just wanting to be helpful. In fact, that was my comment when this person asked me the question. I said, well, why don't you just appreciate the motivation itself? Just simply let wanting to be beneficial be enough. Now, the deluded ego says, no, I've got to be successful, I've got to be seen to be successful. And, well, a consequence of all that is it's hugely extravagant. You're a real burden trying to be helpful all the time, trying to be successful. But then the thought comes in, the fear comes in, and says, well, if I don't really try to be helpful, then maybe I won't be helpful at all. Well, that's where wise reflection is so important. We can listen to that and say, is that really the truth? Do I have to cling to the desire to be successful, to be successful? Is it possible to just allow the motivation of wanting to be helpful, wanting to contribute to the health and healing of humanity, is it possible to just allow that motivation to be there and then wait to see what happens? Once again, the deluded ego doesn't like that at all. Yeah. The habit of wanting proof, wanting evidence, wanting to be sure is so tempting. It's so tempting to cling to that and it can feel so good. But yes, as we were saying before, so can overeating food feel so good at the time but then make us sick. Mm. Or talking too much or cracking too many jokes or spending too long in the sauna. Yeah. It can feel good for a while but then you get exhausted afterwards. We need to be able to step back and question our motivations, not in a compulsive, um, undermining way, but just look at this, I want to be helpful. Where's it coming from? And we don't have to wait until the pandemic's over before we start purifying our motivation. There's a very real chance that I want to be helpful is distorted in some way as a result of our habit of clinging. 
we want to be sure we can be helpful. And then the other side of that is we're afraid we're not going to be helpful. What can we do about it? Well, we can trust. Trust and letting go. And that might bring into focus the fear. Well, if I let go, what's left? Well, this is, uh, again, if we have our commitment to the refuge and awareness itself, that fear is all right. It's not ultimate. Just because we're afraid there's not going to be anything there when we let go doesn't mean to say there's not actually going to be anything there. Traditionally, this is called Mara, the great deluded one. If you let go of your desire to succeed and be helpful, then you're going to be a failure. You're going to be pointless. That's an understandable fear to arise. Perfectly predictable. If we've been clinging to the idea of being successful and, and sure, then that's bound to arise. But we can also receive it, allow it, let it be there, feel afraid, but not get drawn into the fear. And then maybe we see the fear disappear and what's left is a state of contentment. Yes, there can still be the motivation to be helpful, but it's not coming from me having to be helpful anymore. Down at Kusala House, our guest house accommodation, there's a, a sign in the entranceway. You walk in, there's a sign on the wall which says that contentment is not the goal, contentment is the way. And what's meant by that is that we're not striving to do this and do that and then be contented, but rather we're choosing to change our relationship with wanting and realise the possibility of contentment here and now. Maybe there can be a level of contentment even when we're not getting what we want. Like maybe you trying to explain yourself to somebody and, and they just don't get what you're talking about and there can be a feeling of disappointment. But behind that, there can also be a sense of contentment. It's like this. They can be there at exactly the same time. A sense of contentment, a deep sense of contentment. So contentment can be the motivator for action. And when contentment is the motivator for action, well then we're much more sensitive, we're much more attuned, and I would say we're much more likely to bring real benefit. And also much less likely to burn out from compassion fatigue. You know, trying too hard to help everybody and be successful, you can burn out. When discontentment is the motivator, well, it doesn't take a lot of pondering on that to see that that could have a, a lot less benefit. So when contentment is the motivation, I think we can feel safe. You know, contentment, of course, is not the same thing as complacency. And these are not these words are approximations. It's not. Mm-hmm. You have to feel what's being said, not just think about what's being said. I was talking to somebody who comes to the monastery quite regularly, and and they were saying, "Oh, I've been listening to your Dhamma talks, and I don't understand a thing you're talking about." And I said, "Well, that's all right. Don't try and understand them. Try and feel what's being said. Try and feel what's being offered." If we're so used to being up in our heads and familiar with that feeling of certainty when I and that little split-off character up in the attic, Mm -hmm. it can feel good to some degree, but there's parts of us that don't feel good at all. We don't feel whole. We feel divided. We feel partial. Mm -hmm. So this suggestion to exercise discernment, exercise questioning, exercise mindfulness, exercise wise reflection with regards to our motivation. I want to be helpful. Let that be enough in itself and just feel the feeling of wanting to be helpful. Do I have to get what I want? Do I have to be successful? It's like with a lot of situations we find ourselves in you say, this person really needs to be told something. And, and if we're coming from a place of, I have to tell them, then what that person probably going to hear is our being driven and judging them. Whereas if we can inhibit that impulse 
and feel where we're coming from and say, well, can I also choose to not tell this person? Can I choose to tell them or not tell them? And if we find that sort of a place within ourselves, and then we speak, possibly the person will hear more clearly what we're trying to say. They won't just hear the fact that we're judging them and we feel driven to attack them. So using every opportunity to investigate our relationship with wanting, including I want to be helpful, experimenting. It's not something we do with our heads. It's like if you remember those, there's I think a book called Magic Eye, where you look at these designs and you do a sort of a shift with your focus, with your eyes, and then out of this, what looks like just a chaotic pattern of dots, emerges this 3D image. How did that happen? It's still, it's still just a flat piece of paper. There's nothing 3D there, but it has that effect on the brain because we shifted our focus. Similarly, with our relationship, our understanding, our perception of wanting, investigating it in a way whereby our perception shifts so we don't see it as me wanting. Mm-hmm. There's a shift in perspective. I'm not suggesting that wanting changes into a 3D object or something like that, just, but there's that sort of a shift which can have a dramatic result. Okay, so this third question tonight, which is somebody is asking if I would speak about fear, anxiety and emotional turmoil. Emotional turmoil is, again, what we experience when we're holding life too tightly. When our hearts are closed, are contracted, and it can, mean, can actually be physically, you know, our chest is cramped, and our habits of clinging and resisting and denying are such that we can't receive life Of course there's concern about the future right now and that concern can give rise to fear and it's understandable, fear. However, if we cling to that fear, it becomes terrifying. It triggers anxiety. Or if there's aversion, which can be perfectly understandable. You see people behaving selfishly or manipulatively and, and... Perfectly understandable to feel aversion to something that's that's repulsive and ugly. It's like a bad smell. Perfectly understandable we feel aversion. However, if there's clinging to that aversion, then it can become hatred and spite or even rage. And last week when we were talking about the way we view intensely negative emotions and I was encouraging us to see it as not necessarily the case that right here and now I'm busy generating these negative emotions, but in many cases it's actually old, unreceived negative emotions that have been stored away, like we've pushed it down into the basement. We didn't know how to deal with it, we didn't want to deal with it, we thought we could get away with denying it for whatever reason, and it hasn't been received, but it's still there. And we're controlling it all the time. We're going to keep it down there. But periodically the smell comes up through the floorboards. This awful stench creeps up of all this denied life. It's going stale. And we distract ourselves and go up into the attic and play with the computer and play video games or, or go outside and distract ourselves with extreme sports and have interesting experiences. But then when we come home again and we're alone and there's this again, this kind of unfortunate, unpleasant smell coming up from the basement. And, and the older we get, and the worse the smell gets. And, and then when you're locked inside for long periods of time, the smell maybe becomes intolerable. 
after that talk last weekend, somebody asked me, they said they listened to the talk and they were surprised at the thought that they might have a whole lot of unreceived old life stored away and should they be going digging in there to find it? Well, and sort it all out. And I would say you need to be very careful about the idea that I need to be going in there to sort it all out. If it's a quiet motivation of, oh, I feel ready to go down to the basement and take a look at what's there, that's very different. So this is where, again, where a collectedness of mind and mindfulness and, and wise reflection and discernment come in. What's our motivation here? Is this heroic me trying to sort out all my unreceived stuff so that I can become liberated? Bad story. Very dangerous. Cruising for a bruising, as they say. Not a skillful approach. It doesn't mean to say that we don't go down there. It's almost certainly the case that we are sooner or later going to need to go into the basement and look at what there is that we've stored away there. However, our motivation is very important. Is it coming from a demanding clinging space or is it coming from a place of feeling ready and a sense of confidence that being honest with ourselves, opening up to ourselves, receiving ourselves, meeting ourselves and all our limitation is the way to letting go of ourselves. So emotional turmoil is predictable if we haven't developed the skill of cultivating awareness. And it's an embodied training. Again, that's why I often give that example of taking a deep, full breath. I think it was the, the late Venerable Mirkyoni who, who taught me that exercise. That, you know, slow down. Take a deep, full breath until you can't breathe in anymore. Registering the idea of this increased space, increased capacity. And already we're in the body now. We're not in our heads. We're not no longer caught up in the fear of, I can't handle this anymore. Because we're in our body. We're taking all this deep breath. And it takes attention in the body to do that. Already we've got a somewhat relative perspective now on the fear, on the negativity, on the anxiety. And maybe the turmoil that was there before is no longer dominant. The threat of overwhelm is relativized. I can feel the threat of being overwhelmed, but actually right now, no, I'm not totally overwhelmed. We've got a little bit more space around it. So once again, if we want to deal with the root causes of our struggles, and we all have struggles. If we want to deal with the root causes, not just find other ways of distracting ourselves again and making ourselves feel better by telling ourselves our story, and we want to really look at the root causes, then yes, sooner or later we're going to need to go down to the basement and take a really close look. The smell can be really overwhelming at times. Say, no, I can't do this, not yet come back out again. And we need to know that this is not the time. We need to be ready to do that. We need to be have a sense of self-respect. And this is where the precepts are so profoundly important. If we don't have self-confidence that comes from living a life of integrity, then the fear can be really overwhelming. It is regrettably a situation that people sometimes find when they go on meditation retreats and this intensification takes place, a build-up of energy, but they don't have self-respect. And so when the stuff starts surfacing, as it will, and don't have the resilience, don't have the stability, there's not, there's a, there's not a fulcrum that we can orient ourselves with and we get swayed and overwhelmed by this old, unreceived life. In some circumstances, actually, you can compound it and make the situation worse. You become so terrified, and this does happen on retreats sometimes. People open up too much too soon. 
But that's almost certainly because they were trying too hard and they weren't rightly prepared. So that being rightly prepared, one way of being rightly prepared is having the self-respect and the confidence that comes out of keeping the precepts. It's just how it is. It's just, if we have the self-perception that I'm a good person who's trustworthy, we know if we're trustworthy or not. Other people may not know whether we're lying or stealing or cheating, but we know, and we also know whether we're not lying and not stealing and not cheating. And just as if we know somebody else who doesn't lie and steal and cheat, we respect them and trust them and have confidence in them, well, that's likewise, you can feel the same with regards to ourselves. And that self-trust, that self-confidence is a great strength when it comes to meeting ourselves in our limitation meeting ourselves without judgment. And even if we do encounter the compulsive judging mind in it, it's, it's certainly very unattractive and unappealing. If there's the strength of self-respect and self-confidence and there's the strength of mindfulness also, which is essential, maybe there's a chance that we'll just see it. Oh, compulsive judging mind, there it is, it's like that. No judging the judging mind. We can, we can want to judge it, but that's just more of the compulsive taking sides for and against again. Yeah. This judging mind is wrong. I'm wrong. Yeah. We don't have to add that. We don't have to say that. Yeah. Judging mind is just so. It's perfectly predictable. It's how we were taught. It's the kind of education we had. Taking sides for feeling certain and against feeling uncertain taking sides for knowing and against not knowing. Very little education for most of us and learning how to accommodate uncertainty and acknowledge not knowing when that's the case. So the strength that comes from precepts, the strength that comes from mindfulness, and also I would very strongly encourage developing the strength that comes from embodied aspiration. When we bow down to the Buddha image, we're not bowing to graven images, believing that that image has the power to save us, but that image, that Buddha image, symbolizes perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. And if we consciously, intentionally in an embodied way, aspire to realize wisdom and compassion. Personally, I think that counts for a lot. That may be a very powerful vector, if that's the right word, influencing the direction of our lives, using symbols, using rituals in a skillful, conscious way, not in a blind, believing, superstitious way but acknowledging there is that dimension of our being, the unconscious aspect of our being that symbols speak to. And so I bow down physically. The opposite of bowing down is puffing our chest out and pushing our shoulders back and poking our chin up in the air and saying, I don't need anybody, I can do this. Everybody needs somebody, everybody needs help. All deluded egos are inherently inadequate. And if we still believe that our going for refuge to my way, going for refuge to my preferences, going for refuge to my opinions and clinging to them, then we're going to sadly suffer the consequences. So it's not a matter of judging ourselves if we see that's what's going on, but it's engaging the exercises, doing the practices, learning how to bow mindfully, bow with an awareness of the body, I go for refuge to the Buddha. What does that mean? I go for refuge to awareness itself. I go for refuge to the possibility of the realization of perfect wisdom and compassion. So that's what I mean by embodied aspiration. We make this conscious. It's like that's what in theistic religions they they refer to as prayer, generating conscious wish that such and such be true. Well, in this teaching we don't anthropomorphize the Almighty. The Dhamma is the Dhamma. Mm. Reality is reality. And we 
and bowing to the Buddha and going for refuge to the Buddha, we align ourselves with reality. We trust that there is a real reality. And in making such a statement, I have confidence that it establishes structures deep within us, deep within our consciousness that comes to our support, comes to our aid, that helps us when we're, when we're confronted with really tricky stuff really, really subtle stuff, you know, really painful, old, unreceived life that has been there for so long and can be so convincing. And who knows where it came from? Who knows when we picked it up? In early on in life, if, if, for instance, if your parents uh, got unfulfilled longings to be successful in something and they haven't realised, haven't lived the life that they wanted to live and, and then they put it on the child that you've got to be exceptional and the child can interject that expectation and live their whole life basically always trying to please somebody always feeling never good enough the parents are always criticizing the child that you're never good enough try harder what the child is doing out of unawareness because they didn't know better what the child was doing is basically taking on what the parents are putting out and it's the parents' limitations that they're taking on and somehow they make their parents look like they're adequate by taking on their parents' limitation and child psychology theory these days is, uh, has a lot to say about that process of interjection where children take on their parents' limitations to make their parents look adequate and strong. Children don't know what they're doing and you, you've got this perception of inherent limitation locked away inside you, you know? and if you don't develop the spiritual faculties and you don't have a way of reflecting on these things and all you know is that somehow you always feel inadequate or conversely and thankfully we have this opportunity to develop the spiritual faculties and there's old pain surfaces and we can turn around and we can look, what is this anyway, this feeling of I have to always be pleasing somebody I have to always be the winner. I have to always be right. When these spiritual faculties are developing, we start to be able to ask these kind of questions. What is this? And the mindfulness and the steadiness of attention can support us in eventually, hopefully, learning to let go. So this is the purification of awareness. And it's not a, a technique that comes from willfully striving to make our mind peaceful but rather meeting ourselves where we're at with a preparedness, with a readiness so there's no judgement, it's like this I feel thoroughly inadequate and afraid but that's not all there is to me that's not who I am yes, it's part of who I am there's a space in which this is all arising and ceasing. There's a knowing, there's an awareness. Cultivate that as the refuge. So I would say that well-developed precepts, well-developed mindfulness, and well-developed embodied aspiration, if we have these in place, then I think it's safe to trust that reality will give us what we need to handle when we're ready to handle it and also we'll be able to check ourselves if we're going down to the basement and say what's the source of this bad smell anyway we can check ourselves do I really feel ready to do this not if we're just up and it'll split off part in our heads but, yeah. it's like you know, do I feel ready to eat we don't have to think a lot about it, say, oh yeah I'm hungry I'm ready to eat, or if we've eaten have I had enough to eat yeah, I've had enough to eat. No, you haven't. You need to eat some more. <laughs> no, no, I've had enough to eat. Yeah. How do we know? Is it, well, we just know in, in a similar sort of a way. Do I feel ready to look closely at some of this stuff? If we prepare ourselves properly, then I suggest we can trust ourselves in that. So one more question this evening, which says, can our practice help make the world a better place? 
Obviously, I think so. Um, and as we've been considering this evening, I think one of the main ways that, or one of the best ways of thinking about how we can uh, make the world a better place is to orient our lives towards selflessness, to investigate the relationships we have to our motivations. Am I driven to act or to speak? Or is there a perspective on the motivation of wanting to act or speak? Relativizing these impulses, however strong they are, to say something hurtful or do something unkind. And do we have the preparedness? Do we have the conscious composure? Do we have the mindfulness to restrain the impulse to just follow what can be very tempting to follow an uninspected motivation the self-centered being is very vulnerable In this day and age, I'd say tragically it's the case that for many people they're, they're unaware of their vulnerability to become self-centred. The traditional role of conventional religion seems to me was just that. It, it protected people from becoming self-centred, from becoming narcissists. Up until just a few decades ago, that was normal. I've quoted before the statistics that I looked up about how often people in this country used to go to church, and roughly 100 years ago, 90% of the population would go to church regularly on Sundays and be inducted into an understanding of the benefit, the value of cultivating virtues, selflessness, generosity, forgiveness, kindness patience, integrity, mm. honesty, compassion. There's a regular induction into an appreciation of these forces, these wholesome forces, these virtues. And as such, the self-structure was protected from becoming too inflated. The belief that there was an almighty looking over, judging, mm -hmm. As you would expect, I, I, that view has got many limitations as far as I'm concerned, and I didn't find it worked. However, it did nevertheless still offer some degree of protection from being self-centred. And now, largely, that's all gone. It's all about me and what I want. And that leaves us incredibly vulnerable because this self-structure is it's just a phenomena. It's multi-spectrum phenomena. It's not even a stable phenomena. It's changing all the time. And yet if we're relating to it as if it's supposed to be a source of security, a source of well-being, then we're going to be perpetually disappointed. So what's the alternative? Well, since those, the influence of many of the conventional religions in the last, over the last hundred years has, has waned, thanks as a, in large part to materialism, and, uh, people are no longer protected. Well, we need to take this challenge and find new ways. How can we find ways of protecting the self-structure from becoming inflated? How can we protect the self-structure from becoming too self-important? How can we learn to investigate the actuality of the self-structure? A baby that's born doesn't have a self-structure. It's just undifferentiated consciousness. It takes several years before the self-structure gets established. And if it gets established good enough, well, then it can serve the being good enough until they start to realise that the self-structure is not secure. And that's where the spiritual teachings come in. 
ideally you get some education in how we have these other faculties like faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness and discernment. We start to be able to investigate the self-structure and say, what is it really? And what is it that's investigating? In what is this self-structure appearing and disappearing? And the quiet emerging appreciation that all conditions are unstable, all conditions are impermanent, and the letting go happens as a result. And, and as I was saying before, sometimes the letting go can trigger a fear of, well, if I let go of myself, who am I? Well, do we have to really have an idea about who we are? Can't we just be who we are? So the, the question of whether or not our practice can make the world a better place, I don't think there's an intellectual answer for that, but I do think that at least the Buddhist teaching gives us an invitation to inquire into this self-centeredness that gives rise to our attachment to views and opinions and partial existence. Is this a safe, secure way of living? Or is there another way of living? A better way of living? A more beautiful way of living? Thank you very much this evening for your attention.